If you want to go with the flow, live in the moment, wind in your hair kind of life, you need a forward-thinking, prepared-for-anything kind of plan. Like the Audi Freeway Plan Extension. It extends your Audi's maintenance plan by an extra two years or up to 200,000 kilometers. And with free roadside assistance, living in the moment has never gone more according to plan. Visit your nearest Audi dealer today. T's and C's apply. Audi, Vorsprung durch Technik. You're listening to a podcast from 702. Talking to Wendy Nola, consumer journalist, uh, Nola Knows, and uh, addressing all your concerns um, regarding the impact of COVID-19. We know that news of the first confirmed case of the new coronavirus, uh, COVID-19, in South Africa broke just minutes before Wendy spoke to Azania last week. So that was exactly a week ago. And... um, and to, you know, up and, uh, that was exactly a week ago. Now, a week on, that number has jumped to uh, over 17 confirmed cases, uh, four new cases since yesterday. So um, it's fair to say that uh, for those who were sort of poo-pooing um, the, uh, who are poo-pooing the um, keen interest and sometimes panic around uh, COVID-19, it is more than just a flu. They're definitely paying attention, close attention to the news um, and, and getting the wash your hands regularly and don't touch your face advice. Wendy, good afternoon and thank you so much for um, bringing us this um, pertinent, pertinent uh, topic as it relates to the fallout of COVID-19 and how um, consumers can take precautions. Yeah, so for the second week in a row, I've shelved my discussion on prescribed debt because my inbox is just filling with coronavirus-related queries. And I thought, oh, let's let's go with what the people are are, are hungry for news about. And obviously, nothing's topping coronavirus at this stage. So for me as a consumer journalist, the questions being asked are around um, travel plans, Mm -hmm. leisure and business Conferences are being cancelled all over the show. What about refunds? That's yeah. the thing. Do I have to accept a postponement? Um, the other thing is um, uh, employees are saying, what about what if I have to be quarantined and I run out of sick leave or I don't have sick leave? I'm, I'm, on a, uh, you know, I'm an outside contractor. Yes. What happens there? So I've got a labor lawyer standing by to talk to us about that. Um, what else? Um, uh, other things. Um that are being affected. So sure. a lot of companies are not re- requiring us to do the biometric keypad entry thing. Yeah. Um, I've been speaking to a lot of retailers. Consumers are wanting hand sanitizers at toll points for cashiers and themselves mm-hmm. protection. And that's starting to happen in a big hurry. Um, and then what about other things? What about breathalyzers? Can consumers say, well, I'm not putting my mouth on there. Um, yeah. We yeah. have a pandemic here. What are our rights there? Well, speaking tra- of that, Wendy, sorry yes. to interrupt you, I just uh, received a, a text message saying, Hi, Rafila, I'm very concerned about the breathalyzer test for alcohol. And, um, and, and, and she, you know, this, this listener saying, I'm worried about that. Are we sure or can we be sure that even though the tip is removed, that the entire um, machine is actually still safe to use? Well, so I've I'm, I'm been trying to get some information on that. Maybe um, as the show goes on, I'll get it. But for this, at this stage, it's just a question out there to the transport department. Sure. Um, and then what about income protection? What about, you know, if we have to lose income through this, either being quarantined or, or if we, we fall ill with it? Yeah. Um, or how, what, is, what, is the, what is the insurance implications? And then how easy is it to get a COVID-19 test exactly. if you have symptoms and you want to get tested? So hopefully in the hour, that's a lot to jam in. Yeah. But I wanted to start with um, 
travel. Let's yeah. Let's start. Let's start with that because um, the guest, our guest on the line, is uh, going to have to go off into a meeting shortly. Yes. So let's uh, make sure to get in all the questions uh, that we need to. So please go ahead. So for what's changed since last week, Rafiwa, is is um, I was getting emails about people and their overseas, their international travel plans, um, wanting to know when they can get a refund and when they can't. And the short answer of that to that one is still. Um, Rather, if you've decided you're definitely not going to go, if your destination is not a red zone, if it, there's no travel ban, um, best to wait as long as possible because the chances of it becoming one are, are fairly good, in which case you get a full refund. Otherwise, you all you, the best you can hope for is whatever normal cancellation penalty will apply um, outside of this pandemic. So sure. you might get 50% back. You might have to, you might get even less. So unless there's a travel advisory, you're looking at a normal cancellation plan. Mm-hmm. But what's changed since last week is I'm now getting queries um, just in the last 24 hours from people who are wanting to cancel even domestic travel. Really? So, yeah, I've noticed this change. It's, it's sort of Yerusha Patha of Maritzburg in um, KZN, which is very near the, uh, Hilton where the first case was. Mm-hmm. She booked um, a whole big party, booked return flights to Cape Town next month um, for her husband to run the Two Oceans Marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, but they now contemplating cancelling the trip. She says, my fear is there would be many participants from around the world running this race and we don't want to take the risk in getting, uh, you know, coming in contact with and getting infected by this virus. And she said, I've chatted to Manga, the, the airline, and they advise they will not refund our flights as per the terms. Um, what can we do? We yeah. don't, we're going to lose an accommodation and car. And that's sort of the, the question, the main question. And as, as I say, it's if you're just cancelling and the, the actual event hasn't been cancelled and there's, it's not a no-go zone, yeah. you're looking at normal cancellation. So I'm just seeing an escalation in in in, in Questions around the type of travel, even local travel. Now yeah. people are going, I don't, I don't want to do that. Uh, you know, Wendy, I'm keen to find out, and from an industry perspective, is there any sense that, you know, uh, I know this is a huge industry, right, the travel industry, sure. but is there any sense that um, airlines are speaking to each other, um, people in accommodation and uh, hotels are speaking to each other and trying to reach some kind of consensus um, before, you know, get in, essentially to get ahead of the curve? Um, is there any sense that that might happen? Because, you know, to have one kind of consula- uh, cancellation policy with an airline and then a different different one with a very a different airline is you know a little tricky and problematic um i'm not sure that they are uh, collaborating to that extent because certainly with um airline cancellations and with flights um the number of airlines have now well you've got two issues you've got the cancellations that are very of bookings are already made so again they're only doing full refunds if a country is a no-go zone and you, sure. they're not they're cancelling their flights for that so they're cancelling rather than you mm-hmm. um, And but all the airlines are now looking to or most of them are, are building in flexibility free for consumers otherwise people just wouldn't book anymore so we're going to put it on our on our podcast but for example say um, Emirates um, has um, waived all fees for booking changes on bookings made before the end of this month to all countries yeah. um, and flights between March 9 and April 30, booked before March the 2nd, can be changed at no cost. Um, you've got to rebook within a month. But they, you can imagine that the, the, the industry would collapse if people felt that they, if they make a booking and they need to change or cancel their plans, they're not going to get full refunds. Yeah, so yeah. all the airlines and each one is doing their different things. So I don't think there is massive sort of collaboration on terms of this is what our policy is going to be. They're all doing their own things. But I know 
Um, I saw um, the Restaurant Association of South Africa, a, a, a WhatsApp group. Yeah. They're all talking to each other and trying to um, come up with policies that they're all going to adhere to in terms of ca- cancellations and dealing with hygiene issues and all the rest yeah. of it. Yeah. So I think it makes sense that this is a ma- an international crisis. It makes sense that the organizations are going to be um, coming together and sharing information and trying to work out what their strategies are going to be. Yeah. Um, I just thought I should mention, talking about staying with cancellations, I did speak to the Consumer Good and um, uh, services ombudsman Mahata Batlele asked if she wanted to come on air with us today, but unfortunately she's got um, uh, pre-booked things the whole day. Yeah, yeah. But um, we having we're seeing consul- uh, cancellations just constantly today. Constance book fairs, world the World Football Summit in Durban's been cancelled. Africa Burn, a gallery exhibition opening, the Goodman Gallery in Joburg. All these things are cancelling and. Um, Consumers want to know from me, if you've paid up front, um, are you entitled to a refund? Do you have to accept a postponement? And sure. the Ombud felt that no, um, you, didn't, you shouldn't be forced to um, accept a postponement. If they cancel, you may no longer use your ticket. You should be entitled to a full refund. All right. So, so there's some clarity there. There's some clarity there for yeah. now. Yeah. But right. um, I think we, while we have our guest available... Um, I wanted to know, because people are starting to ask me, what are companies doing? How are they tweaking their um, policies and procedures with regard to this virus and the need for work from home, quarantine or self-isolation, whatever you call it, or or being told by the health department that you will um, isolate yourself? Um, Where does that leave people, both um, full-timers and Say part-time contract workers, um, and and you know this is totally uncharted ter- territory for these companies. Yeah. And what are they doing about it? So, right. um, Michael Maso, who's head of employment law at Shepston and Wiley, firm of attorneys, I'm hoping he's going to join us now right. to well, shed some light. We're working on getting Michael on the line, but let's answer okay. a quick question here from Wendy and Benoni. Wendy, welcome to the show. Go ahead and speak to Wendy. Hi, um, we are traveling to New Zealand next week, Wednesday, on Singapore Airlines. So we have the scheduled stop in Singapore itself and going via Auckland on the way to get to Wellington. I'd like to know if we are um, already in Wellington and upon our return flight, if either Singapore Airlines or the Australians or South Africa, for that matter, cancels um, and you know places a travel ban. If we land up somewhere along one of those scheduled stops, um, who's going to pay for possible accommodation or however long it takes until the airline or the country lifts their ban, and who will be liable for that? Thanks for your question, Wendy. <laughs> Wendy, that is a very, I mean, that hasn't really happened yet. I haven't had anyone write to me in that situation and say this happened or that didn't happen. Mm -hmm, But I think mm -hmm. it's fair to say that if, um, well, first of all, if you've got travel insurance, that should cover that. Um, That's the first thing. Um, And if you're taking out travel insurance in the future, take it out just after you've booked your ticket. Don't wait until just before you fly because of this issue. Uh I honestly don't know. I, w- I would like to think that you shouldn't be out of pocket, that somewhere along the line um, th- somebody would reimburse you, but you probably need to pay for it up front. For example, last Friday. And then get reimbursed Friday, later, perhaps. And then get re- keep all your slips and whatever. Okay. So, so last um, Friday, Thailand um, issued a statement saying people from the big five countries, China, South Korea, Italy, 
a few others, if they arrived in the country from Friday, they would have to, they would be required to ma- mandatory self quarantine. Sure. And I'm thinking they're in your hotel, in your, wherever you're staying, and the government was going to check on you every day during that quali- quarantine period of two weeks. And I'm, I was thinking, well, um, so you're ordering room service on your credit card in mm, your hotel room. Who's mm, going to pay for mm, that? Absolutely. Is the government going to pay for that? So these questions are still um, to be answered as this pandemic rolls out. So I'm guessing, Wendy, it's probably just advisable to call your insurance directly um, and just uh, uh, flesh it out with them, so really, before you even travel. Thing. Yeah. If each one is going to have different terms and conditions. I so know exactly what you're in for as this, this the the... the unusual circumstance yeah. of coronavirus. Definitely uncharted territories. All right, mm. now we do have Michael Meso on the line. He's a head of employment law at Shepston and Wiley Attorneys, Wendy. And of course, in this instance, we're discussing with Michael um, just what uh, employees, um, what fallback employees have, should they have to work remotely? Or in fact, um, what coverage do you have if you are sick and uh, you've been diagnosed or con- diagnosed with COVID-19? Um, let's, let's take a look at that. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Go um, ahead. So Ma- okay, so should a, hello Michael, should a full-time employee be, be afraid that having to be quarantined for 14 to 21 days, whatever it is, um, will leave them with less income for the month? I mean, is there a circumstance where they actually exhaust their annual and sick leave and then they don't get full pay at the end of the month? Yeah, well, let's, let's start off um, with, with what the law says. The law requires every employer to ensure that they keep a safe and healthy workplace. Uh, so that obligation is in place. Now, as a result of that, an employer would be perfectly within its rights to then exclude or prevent an employee from attending the workplace if that person has tested positive for the virus. Mm-hmm. Now, that's going to require a medical certificate or medical diagnosis, not... Not uh, not your own sort of diagnosis because you've got a runny nose and a fever. So <laughs> yeah. and one and once you've tested positive, then that would then fall within the realm of sick leave. And so, as you quickly touched on, sick leave would then apply. So your time should then be covered, particularly if it's just the 14 days that we're talking about for isolation. If, however, you one of those unfortunate souls that have exhausted your sick leave prior to being um, tested positive. Then you're in a little bit in, in a bit of a grey area, um, and then it would really depend largely on the good faith of your employer. Mm. Many employers would be prepared to convert annual leave into this time so that you're not out of pocket, or some uh, benevolent employers are even going so far as to accept this as being an out of the ordinary situation and coming to some arrangement with that employee that if it is just the 14 days, that period is then covered. But that is not a legal obligation. There's no contractual obligation to that. Uh, once you exhaust your statutory sick leave and any contractual annual leave, technically speaking, an employer could then say any period away from work then is unpaid. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I suspect another grey area is going to emerge here, having spoken to someone in this situation. They were, they're self-employed, but it might not be a self-employed person who travels from overseas or just, you know, attends some mass gathering, a few that that are still going ahead, and then has flu-like symptoms, which are unusual for them, and decides to self-isolate um, and for, for two weeks to protect others and, and see what happens with them. That is, a, that is not something that you would have a, a, a medical certificate for. 
Um, and I suppose, again, that would that would depend um, in terms of how your employment or your pay is affected. That would affected on the, be affected or dependent on the attitude of your employer. Correct. If, if your employer is particularly stingy, he may say, I'm not prepared to grant any sick leave unless there's uh, medical evidence to, to support that diagnosis. But I do think that under the current situation, most employers are, are dealing with this um, in a fairly flexible manner and, and are proving to be a little bit more practical about it. So if you were able to show that you've just recently returned from China, or more in particular, you've just returned from a business trip from overseas in an area which has got a higher high, um, um, rate of, of, of infection, then I'm sure your employer is going to accommodate you, even if you're not showing the symptoms, simply because obviously given its obligation to keep a safe workplace, it doesn't want you walking through its doors and potentially contaminating others. Sure. Yeah. Wendy and Michael, I just, yeah. Wendy and Michael, I just want to jump in here because um, I know, Wendy, you're going to talk about contract workers who don't necessarily have leave benefits. I'm curious, though, for people who um, pay towards UIF, are there any illness benefits that they can claim from that fund? A UIF, as far as I understand, and I'm not a UIF expert, sure. um, is only, only kicks in once you're unemployed. So es- essentially your contract of employment would have to be terminated or in the case of pregnancy that's the only other time that UIF kicks in and, and now we've got parental leave as well sure, which sure, sure. recently gazetted but those are specific items otherwise it's going to be a payment only on the termination of employment all right go ahead Wendy um, so contract workers um, who don't have the safety net of benefits including leave benefits I would imagine they're a little bit, well, they're definitely more vulnerable. Um, are you picking up any of your um, clients talking about making arrangements for them should the, you know, any of them get, you know, be pushed into forced quarantine or, or, or get infected? Or is it too, too soon for those sort of things to be happening? Yeah, I think at this moment in time, most of my clients are so up to their eyes dealing with their permanent fixed term employees, uh, they haven't really dealt with the contract employees in the true sense. I think the general principles will apply, however, is that if you are an independent contractor in the normal course, a proper independent contractor, you registered as such through uh, SARS and, um, and you're not paying PAYE or any of those issues, you're not under the subject or control of your employer, and you're simply selling your product and your end result, then the unfortunate thing there, of course, is that your relationship with, with, your, with your client or is... is is simply what's contained in your contract. And usually in those circumstances, if you can't produce your pro- your product mm. or provide your service, you're not paid. So no, they are no pay. Mm. Yeah. Okay. We, when speaking off-air, you mentioned um, something quite unusual, and that was some industries, um, corporates within those industries, um, force their employees as a routinely so every time they arrive at work they are breathalyzed they have a zero tolerance for any alcohol especially those with highly mechanized operations you told me there's been some pushback now from those employees about putting their mouths over those breathalyzers how is how are the corporates dealing with that yeah well um a lot of breathalyzers 
not necessarily require you to place your lips over them. You can see I haven't done many in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Some are just blowing into the system. So, you know, you actually don't even make contact with the... uh, With the with the machine, but of course we all know. Well, we should know that this, this virus appears to be. Uh, it can be you can be infected through the transmission of of saliva, um, of droplets. Yeah, and that even insofar as air conditioning is concerned. So everything's unknown at this stage, and and that's what these employees are now finding is that trade unions are getting on the bandwagon and saying we are not letting our members. Um, blow into a breathalyzer in any manner or form because of the unknown uh, consequences of that act. And, and I think at this stage, there is a certain amount of legitimacy with that concern because one really doesn't know. And, and a lot of employers who really feel that their, safe, their workplace safety would be compromised unless they conduct these tests are having to think out the box. Mm. They, they are either going to have to sterilize this breathalyzer in front of the people before they blow or there's going to have to be um, a new mouthpiece fitted onto each onto the recording device each time someone blows. Um, sure. These are the things that need to be done. Yeah, uh, and otherwise, as some employers have done right now, is that they've reached an agreement with their trade union collective bargaining agent and said, for for the immediate future, until such time as there's greater certainty, we will no longer test um, employees mm. uh, by way of a forced breathalyzer. But we reserve the right, obviously, to monitor. And if a person's acting strangely, then we will take steps and possibly then re- rely on a blood test in order to determine that person's um, level of sobriety. Sure. It, yeah, it, it really seems as though um, employee, employers might be opening them up to uh, themselves up to some other kind of um, action should something go wrong. Um, if they can't observe strange or erratic behavior, if it's found that this, um, this uh, employee is actually under the influence of alcohol or some drug, that, that really sounds dangerous well, it is. in a mechanized environment. Correct. You operate in an environment that has mechanized machinery, forklifts, um, all those type of things, you can imagine you, you need your employees to be in full control of their faculties. And if these are impaired in any way sure. through the consumption of alcohol, you as an employer would be liable in terms of the legislation because yeah. you haven't taken steps to ensure a safe workplace. Yeah. Now, if, if you had a rule in place whereby you breathalyze and now you are deciding not to, you know, that's something that's going to have to be explained in the event of there being an accident in the workplace and found that that employee was intoxicated at the time. Yeah. So there are issues that are going to be discussed in the future, I'm sure. Yeah. Michael and Wendy, we do have a call from Rashid in Pretoria. Rashid, thank you so much for calling in. You have a question about or comment about sick leave abusers. Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, is it Wendy? Afternoon, yes. yes Wendy and Michael. Um, yes, yes um, I, what I wanted to find out is, you know, you, you, you get this, uh, especially in large or corporization uh, uh, in companies and stuff, where people use and abuse their sick leave annually. You know, they take up the whole 36 days in three years and you know who they are and you try and manage them uh, according to the policy of the company. What happens if these individuals now need that sick leave and, and uh, you know, to take over 21 days, do you have the right to, to, uh, to say no? Yeah, I think in the trade we, we commonly call these people malingerers. 
But um, but that then turns on your evidence as to whether these people are in fact malingering or whether they did in fact have good reason to be away during that time. Now, oftentimes you will know from an from your observation of an employee that the periods of absence tend to appear tend to occur always on a Monday or a Friday <laughs> in a long weekend, um, and that's not always just simply by coincidence. Sure. And you start to examine that 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 um, that behavioural pattern. And if that then shows the person is, as you said, abusing sickness, well, then they should be disciplined for that. Unless you have disciplined them and taken them to task for that, you can't then penalise them, in my opinion, um, because of the, because of the introduction of this unplanned and unthought of event, um, coronavirus um, coming into the situation, and then say, well, because you you've, you've appeared to have taken a lot of sick leave in the past we're no longer going to cut you the benefit of whatever deal we strike with employees moving forward. I think that would be very dangerous unless you have a firm platform upon which to distinguish between that event and the general event of other employees. All right. It's just gone half past two. We will carry on our conversation with Wendy Nola and Michael Meso, the head of employment law at Shepston and Wiley Attorneys regarding uh, COVID-19 and, of course, its impact on uh, employees and the workplace. Iva on the Azania Mosaka show. I'm Rafilo Mpakanyane standing in for Azania. And uh, we carry on our conversation with Wendy Nola discussing specifically um, how to deal with people who are told to isolate themselves because they've come into contact with a person who's been confirmed to have been infected with COVID-19. So when packing just the ramifications of that kind of action with um, Michael Meso, he's the head of employment law at Shepston and Wiley Attorneys. Wendy and Michael, we do have a call on the line. Pierre from Victoria has got a question. Pierre, welcome to the show. Thank you for your time. Um, so my question is, in terms of the uh, COID, uh, Competition for uh, Occupational Injuries on Duty, will they pay out if you contract the uh, the disease at work? And, um, I mean, if, if half the country contract the virus, would they be able to pay all claims? Thanks. Thanks, Pierre. Michael. You know, well, that's a, that's a million dollar question. I mean, if 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 a claim of, of of that nature occurs, you'd have to you'd have to you'd have to show that it came about as a result of you performing your duties. Mm. Um, uh, not and so I think there's a few issues there that you'd have to you'd have to cross before you have a successful claim. But um, but the second point of your question is, is is a very good one because in the event of these claims being made and being upheld, you know, is is um, the government going to have the funds to to um, to cover these claims? And well, that just depends on the size of the problem, I suppose. Mm. To be continued, that story as well. It's just fascinating how this the tentacles are just stretching into every yeah. part of our lives, and we're all trying to figure out what it means and how we're going to cope. Um, as yeah. a nation, as a and as as individuals, yeah. Um, so I, I I can see myself doing <laughs> almost <laughs> exclusively coronavirus shows for a while to come yet. Um, Michael, I know you have to leave. Thank you so much for for your time and your and your input. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much.
All right. Thank you so much, Michael, Head of Employment Law at Shipston and Wiley Attorneys. You know, Wendy, um, Pierre's question is quite a pertinent one, and I guess it would also be very sector-specific, for instance, right? If you work in healthcare or perhaps you work uh, at home affairs and you're screening people and you're at the call face, uh, let's say, at the airport, um, that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, yes. that's one area that one would think you need to be um, sort of read up and affair with what the law says regarding that. But, yeah, so and, many pertinent questions. Yeah, and, and you can see the... Um, manifestation of the employer's obligation to mm. provide their workers with a safe workplace. You can see if you travel often as I do that for, for quite a while now, the people at the manning the security section are, are all masked up. Yep. The, there's hand sanitizer everywhere. Yep. The companies have to have to do whatever necessary, in, and it would be different for each industry, obviously, yeah. to protect their staff. Yeah. And I think that this is the week that things have got very real for South Africans, and yeah. I can sense the scrambling that's going on. I wanted to just, before we move on to the insurance issue, um, the whole breathalyzer thing, obviously it's not just companies who breathalyze, the state does. Um, sure. Our traffic authorities breathalyze, and I was having had that chat with Michael about he felt that there could be legitimate um, uh, justification for somebody saying, I'm not, because of this pandemic, I don't feel safe, I'm not going to use that breathalyzer, I don't know what um, sterilizing uh, protocols you have, yeah. etc. So I, I went first to Wayne Minar, a spokesman for the JPMD, and he said, look, I think this is more of a national issue. So mm-hmm. I did um, reach out to our uh, transport minister, Gillian Balula, um, earlier this uh, today during the morning. Yeah. Unfortunately, I haven't had a response. But we've got an Easter weekend coming up, known for breathalyzer roadblock blitzes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'm hoping that we get some clarity on that because – they have a right to make sure that um, we're not driving drunk and, and we have a right to ensure that um, in doing so, they don't endanger our health. Yeah. So a really interesting offshoot of this whole thing. But if, I mean, you know, if I remember correctly, and, I, and I, our listeners can correct us, but I'm pretty sure in terms of being stopped by the JMPD or any traffic authorities, you know, they need to uh, take the, um, it, it is an attachment and it should be sealed. So just make sure that attachment is sealed and perhaps you be the one to open it up and place it on the machine. Um, and, and uh, you know, because ultimately, like you said, they do actually have a mandate to fulfill which is making sure that we are safe on the roads and um uh, you know they keep they keep citizens safe so really really key uh and perhaps if you've ever been in an instance where this um this mouthpiece was not removable uh, and replaced with a temporary one uh you'd be able to enlighten us but i'm pretty sure if i remember correctly it definitely is replaceable now as we carry on uh wendy talking about we're pivoting now to uh having a chat about insurance tell me why you thought it would be important um to get a handle on this and, and what it is that you want to explore with uh, Marius Buerta, who we do have on the line, uh, the CEO of Life Insurer Stangent. Well, to be honest, a lot of people in the various industries, their PR agents are putting out um, press releases around, you know, COVID-19 angles. It's, sure. what, it's what the PR industry does. Mm-hmm. And so when I got this in this, this um, particularly press, particular press release, I did think... Um, it's really interesting. I think it stands to reason that your 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 it would be if if, if you had to ever obviously someone those who die sure. whether it's a funeral policy or your life cover it's going to the, the cause of death um, being related to COVID nineteen is not going to be that relevant. But what about 
income protection because mm-hmm. this is a theme. If it, this, the numbers are starting to get worrying and if we're in numbers being put into a situation through quarantine or, or, or either because we're suspected or because it's been confirmed and we can't earn an income, yeah. this now becomes income protection policies now become a lot more pertinent for us mm-hmm. as a nation. So I wanted to, him to flesh that out a bit and and also to um, you know to tell us a little bit more what sort of questions we should be asking of that industry. So All right. do we have him on the line? We do. Maurice Berta, welcome to the Azani Masaka Show. Thank you for your time this afternoon. Thank you. So Marius, is it too late if you don't already have an income protection policy, which is not a not an um, it's not a cheap thing to come by. It's quite a chunk out of your out of your um, monthly income to protect yourself in this way. Now that we, we we are in the middle of this pandemic, or we don't know where we are, but we're in the grips of it certainly. Um, are our, if we decide now, oh gosh, maybe I should. This is the time that I should protect myself in this way. Are premiums likely to be an awful lot higher than they would have been three months ago? The short answer is at this stage, no, we are not specifically looking to increase premiums given the outbreak of the disease. The reason is that a income protection policy or salary protection policy is premised on the definition of what we call occupational disability. So we're looking oh, at whether you have a form of disability that results in you no longer being able to perform your job. So certain disabilities, therefore, don't um, qualify for um, a claim on those products because you still have the ability to continue working. And yeah. we also distinguish between, for a particular disease or disability, the progression of that disease. So these products typically would first consider whether you are temporarily disabled from performing your occupation. And then we look at, have you, for example, already utilized all your sick leave mm-hmm. and what is the severity of the disease? And then we um, separately from that look at permanent disability. So the products typically would say, um, if you, if we can verify that you've utilized sick leave, you are temporarily disabled, we'll potentially start paying out, assuming all other terms and conditions are met. Um, and it's only if you then progress into a permanent form of disability. So the disease results in a permanent form of no longer being able to perform your job, then it would pay out the percentage of income up until normal retirement age. What we understand from the disease at this stage is that the progression is either towards uh, fully recovering from it, so most people with a strong immune system would recover, um, and there's a high likelihood of that happening, given from what we've seen in other countries. Unfortunately, if it does progress into um, death, then typically that would be covered by um, the life insurance payout. Um, there are some products in the market, I just want to mention, for example, a critical illness or dread disease product. If you have a comprehensive version of those, some of those policies cover what we call a terminal illness. So if, in this instance, the progression of COVID-19 results in terminal illness before death, you could get payout under that. But at this stage, our view is there's a low likelihood of the disease resulting in permanent disability. That would either so. lead to recovery or death. Sure. So what would your advice for consumers be then? Those who already have an income protection policy as opposed to just check waiting periods if it's fairly new and that kind of thing? Or um, is this, you think this um, pandemic is going to be result in people looking perhaps at the first, for the first time at getting this kind of protection for their income? 
Our general advice is that people should not react out of fear in purchasing any form of financial product because it could potentially then result in making the wrong purchase. So I think that is important to state. It should be part of a holistic financial planning review. Um, if you are considering reviewing, um, it is advisable to look at do you have um, a particular form of disability cover in place? And I think people need to decide for themselves on the basis of information, does it mean a critical illness product or does it mean an occupational disability type product where it's premised on loss of income? Um, and then, of course, uh, to review their life insurance policies as well. I think it's also important for employers to consider whether they have uh, necessarily taken steps to look after their staff and put this in place. And then for business owners or self-employed individuals, um, for them to also look at whether they have something in place should there be loss of income. There are uh, policies in the market that do cover business owners under particular sets of terms and conditions and so it's worthwhile especially i think for self-employed individuals who typically don't take out these policies to just consider whether they should buy it uh, but then again do it with the right long-term financial planning arousal in place not just for the short knee jerk mm, yeah okay. are you seeing um, some sectors of the industry fear-mongering around this pandemic in terms of trying to push product we have seen isolated instances of that happening. Um, our view is the industry should respond in a mature manner. We should not sell policies off the basis of fear. It should still be because of a holistic financial review process. Um, and so our view is we do not want customers to simply come and buy because they're afraid of this. Um, I don't think that would be a mature response from the industry. Yeah, okay, sound advice there from Maris Wurtem. <laughs> Thank you, Maris. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Maurice Porter, CEO of Life Insurer Stangen. You know, Wendy, um, I think it's also very, very key to uh, what we, what Michael uh, Marius just touched on now, that there is a set or a kind, a set of products that are available to those self-employed people, and that would include those uh, contract workers or those freelancers yes. that we touched on. And uh, I think uh, perhaps something to expand on at another time is just the low rate at which people who are self-employed or freelancing take out these very important income protected yeah, policies because they so usually. Key. Yeah, they're usually, you know, a bit tight and, and just think, oh, it's just an yeah. extra expense I can do without. And, yeah, um, yeah it's the, the, it takes something like this to sober one up and think, you know, perhaps I need to be a grown-up here and protect protect my income. Absolutely. If you're the brains behind your operation, in fact, if you're the only thing behind your operation, when you're out for the count, um, no one else can take over, you know. Um, so it's really, really something key to think about. Now, something else that we want to um, go on to unpack, Wendy, is how easy easy is it to get a COVID-19 test? You ask that. That's a very, very pertinent yeah, question. So, so how easy is it? So, well, what we, you know, the authorities are saying, look, we don't want um, people getting a bit of a you know, flu, flu symptom and rushing to their GP, certainly without a mask sure. and, um, and demanding a test um, out of panic. Yeah. Because number one, if, if, if you do, in fact, if you have contracted the virus, you're going to infect a whole lot of other people. Um, in that doctor's room while you're waiting. So the advice is that you should um, contact a doctor and take advice from there or contact the NRCD. They take you through um, a checklist of questions, etc. But I spoke to um, a Pretoria-based man um, this morning. He asked not to be named, but he recently visited the U.S. and the U.K. and he traveled back home to Johannesburg um, out of Heathrow Airport. And this week, he on Tuesday, he started getting flu-like, flu-like symptoms, 
muscle aches, the whole bit. Mm-hmm. And he thought, well, he should probably um, do the right thing and get tested. And he said, he's, it's now Thursday afternoon and um, he still hasn't been tested because he said he phoned he, he phoned his physician who, long story short, was in Cape Town and she remotely um, referred him to a, a lab, path care, with you know, written reference yeah. and um, who, who practice number and all the rest and he was told no no it doesn't work like that the referral has to come from the NICD Uh ended up at a medical practice in Pretoria Intercare and um, he was then given NICD forms to fill in and to monitor his symptoms for 48 hours while he self isolates and after that so by tomorrow this time tomorrow more or less he'll be able to um, he'll supply his um, Checklist, and he's got to monitor symptoms and everything for those 48 hours, and then they will decide if he qualifies for a swab test. Yeah. He says, I was willing to pay for the test, but it seems to me the criteria is too strict, which might explain why only 645 people, according to NICD yesterday, I think it was, yeah. um, had been tested so far. Interestingly, the NICD said about 48 hours ago that they tested more than 3,000 people and then they came back and said no we've made a mistake it was only 645 which is that's a huge discrepancy I've been trying to engage with them today but I think you know 12,000 media practitioners are trying to get hold of the NICD and I haven't had a response but this chap's um, comment to me was Tom Hanks and his wife if you read their post they've just been uh, it's just been announced that they we woke up to the news that they have both tested Mm -hmm. positive for COVID-19 in Australia when he's making a film and if you read his account he had very very mild symptoms and this chap's comment was if he tried to get tested (laughs) in South Africa with those (laughs) symptoms he would you know he wouldn't have been tested and, and he wouldn't, in that case, wouldn't have been concerned. And he was just saying, I'm trying to do the right thing, not for myself. I'm very low risk. He yeah. said, and if I got it, I would recover quite quickly with no, no long lasting problems. He said, but I'm just worried about, you know, infecting somebody else. Absolutely. And he just felt, um, that the approach was too conservative and not helping containment. Yeah. Now we have a, a highly reputable NICD. They're, they did fantastic things during the listeriosis outbreak and, and I, we're very lucky to have them as a nation. But, um, I'm just interested in this point because we don't want to have you know, you obviously don't, you don't want to run out of tests because everybody yeah. who has a sniffle is now wanting to be tested. Well, one imagines be... they're trying to avoid exactly that, right? A, yes. a, a run on the laboratories and everybody trying to get tested so or really, people saying, I've got the money, I can pay for it, do it anyway. Exactly, mm-hmm. but it was just interesting. Where does that line between not letting something, somebody go, you know, about their business yeah. um, because they've only got mild symptoms potentially infecting a whole lot of other people. So it's quite, it'll be interesting to see how that balance is found in the coming days and weeks. Um, we don't know how long we're going to be in the grip of this thing. But it was, unfortunately, as I say, I did try to engage the NICD on this, but I do understand that they um, sure. are swamped All right, with well. some, some queries. But it's, if anyone has any comments and has similar um, experience, it would be interesting to hear from them. All right, let's take a break now and we'll carry on our conversation in a few minutes. 702. 702. We're listening. And as we wrap up the show, indeed, let's uh, turn to the lines. Chrissa in Santon is uh, a travel consultant, I'm guessing, and wants to talk about cancellations. Welcome to the show. Thanks for your time, Chrissa. Hi, thanks for listening to me. I'm a luxury travel and uh, cruise specialist, 42 years. Mm-hmm. Never has there been more an important time how important travel insurance is. And not only that, 
your travel agent has to purchase the right policy for you. So only if you buy the insurance within 48 hours of purchasing your ticket or paying the balance of your trip are you covered for voluntary cancellation insurance. That's the only time you can say, I don't want to go next week, I don't want to go in July, and I don't want to go in November, because you just don't feel like it. If you have a policy that covers even infectious diseases, certain cancellation policy covers these like 11 points, but it still has to be a WHO travel alert to not go to a country or to a lockdown country, for instance, Italy, South Korea, China, Iran. Up and also, you mm-hmm. have to purchase the right travel insurance product. The bank credit card insurance policy issue Doesn't automatic cover. insurance coverage with very little cancellation cover. Then mm-hmm. mostly agents or the traveling public take a top up. Yeah. Fine. You can do that. You get a little bit more cancellation, but you're still not covered for the voluntary cancellation cover. You've got to buy a full separate add-on travel insurance policy. Absolutely. Also, all the international media, the local media are saying, everybody's relaxing the cancellation policy. That's not like that. Every airline on their website has got what their rulings are. Some airlines are being a little bit nicer than others. They're putting your whole amount of your air ticket, whether it be first business or economic class, they're putting it onto a voucher which you can use for the next year. Fantastic. Krista, thank you so much for your contribution and uh, speaking straight from the chest there, um, Wendy, and uh, giving us a heads up. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. so this is what we said last week, and I repeated it briefly earlier in the show, that the days of, um, I think not just coronavirus, it's just in general, I think it's it's woken people up to the... To the reality that if I don't know, I have many times in the past, you buy your travel insurance, I always get top up because through my job I know that the credit card yeah. the free insurance is so limited. Absolutely. So I always, and I take it out just before I, I travel, and that's not good enough anymore. You must take it out um, within 48, 48 hours. hours. I must say, I've never been advised of that, Wendy. Yeah, so the, yeah. I, I wasn't aware of that until this, until yeah. this crisis. So yeah. um, make sure if you're going to travel, that um, you you have you invest mm-hmm. too much at stake. Invest in that best yeah. um, travel insurance you can get, including that very specific voluntary cancellation. Correct. Right. Are you able to tell us a few airlines that are perhaps uh, offering cancellations or changes to uh, bookings due to coronavirus? As we wrap really quickly. Okay, so it's a, it's a long list. I hope we're going to put it up on the podcast. Absolutely. Um, Business Insider was yesterday, I think, put out a full list, but. Um, I mentioned Emirates uh, just now. Yeah. If you if you book before the end of March, you then if you cancel or or change, um, you can get a uh, it'll waive all fees for that. Mm-hmm. So in other words, if you cha- if you're planning to travel to Europe, okay. or, so maybe or one more airline there. One more airline. Let's see. Turkish has become uh, popular. Passengers who booked flights to China between January and April one on Turkish Airlines. Reservation changes will be made free of charge for flights before May the 31st. And it's very complicated. I think we don't have time, but if if they want to go on the website, there are about nine airlines there, and each one has a very specific, detailed policy to deal with coronavirus bookings. Fantastic. Wendy Nola, always an education and absolutely illuminating. And, of course, we'll be hearing from you again next week. Next week. All right.